This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Just before midnight on April 16, 1961, close to 1,500 Cuban exiles landed on the shores of their native country. Their mission was simple, take over the beach town of Playa Giron, secure the airfield, and convince the locals to revolt with them and overthrow Fidel Castro's communist regime. But the invasion proved disastrous from the moment the exiles reached the shore. The landing party, which had no air support and no naval support, was greeted by well-armed Cuban troops on the ground. Within 48 hours, the invasion was thoroughly crushed, and almost 1,200 of the rebel fighters were taken prisoner by the Cuban army. Despite the United States' public disavowals, everyone knew that the invasion was planned by the U.S. government. And instead of delivering a resounding blow to the Cuban Communist Party, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion only served to push Fidel Castro further into the arms of the Soviet Union. The Cold War just got chillier. And as Castro's government amassed more power, as well as global allies, the United States was forced to consider more extreme options for deposing the ruler. Options so extreme that they remain classified for 35 years. In 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories on the Parcast Network. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the first of two episodes about the events leading up to Operation Northwoods a government-sanctioned plan to cultivate support for a war against Cuba. Officially, the plan was never put into operation, but some of the proposals included faking a Cuban attack on Guantanamo Bay and blowing up a U.S. military ship to incite outrage from American citizens. Today, we'll be focusing on the historical events surrounding U.S.-Cuba relations, including the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Next week, we'll explore some of the most popular conspiracy theories surrounding the tumultuous era and the possibility that a plan similar to Operation Northwoods was actually put into effect on September 11, 2001. The 1940s and 50s were a tumultuous time in the global political arena. The U.S. watched with trepidation as communism and, by extension, the Soviet Union gained power. The top political leaders of the United States saw communism as a direct threat to the democracy that dominated Western countries and, as such, did their best to curb its spreading influence. America's next-door neighbor, Cuba, was going through its own political turmoil at the time. Several leaders came and went during the 40s and 50s, most of whom came into power with the assistance of Fulgencio Batista. A former military sergeant, Batista was elected president of Cuba in 1940 and ruled for four years. Even though he was defeated in the election of 1944, Batista remained an influential political figure. And in 1952, after a series of elected presidents had proven inefficient, Batista canceled the 1952 elections and led a military coup, seizing power once again. As the coup would suggest, Batista was more interested in helping himself than helping the Cuban people. Once he was back in power, Batista's first moves were to suspend the Constitution and revoke civil and political liberties, including the rights of workers to strike. Despite all this, the United States firmly supported his rule. Batista was strictly capitalist, and in the tense Cold War era, the U.S. tended to prefer a corrupt authoritarian capitalist ally to a fairly elected communist rival. Even more importantly, Batista was willing to work with the U.S. for their mutual self-interest, which meant allowing U.S.-based corporations to dominate Cuba's industries at the expense of the island's smaller companies and average workers. 
The U.S. already had significant property in Cuba, such as sugar mills and oil refineries, and not only was it safe under Batista's capitalist rule, it was thriving. It's estimated that at the height of Batista's rule, 70% of the nation's arable land was owned by foreign companies and individuals. But while the U.S. was willing to turn a blind eye to the rampant corruption within Batista's government, the Cuban people were less enthusiastic about the setup. While he was cozying up to foreign interests, Batista was ignoring the economic concerns plaguing the island, such as the high unemployment rate and growing wealth gap between the rich and poor. One of his most outspoken critics was a political activist and lawyer named Fidel Castro. In 1952, Fidel Castro was far from the communist leader we've come to know in our history books. After Batista's coup, the 26-year-old budding activist took to the courts and tried to prove that the dictator's power grab was against the Cuban constitution. But the courts refused to listen to Castro's case. By the end of 1952, his new goal became clear. If there was no way to oust Batista with legal maneuvering, then Castro would have to do it with force. With the help of his brother Raul, Fidel Castro started gathering followers to join his so-called movement. Their first target was the Moncada military barracks, the second largest military garrison on the island. On July 26, 1953, Fidel, Raul, and 160 of their followers mounted their attack. Their mission was simple take control of the barracks, send out a message via the base's advanced audio equipment, and rally the Cuban people and army to rise against the tyrannical Batista. The rebels set out at dawn on the 26th in high spirits, but reality soon became apparent. They were outnumbered and outgunned, and their attack was quickly squashed by the Cuban military. Both Castro brothers were taken into custody. The July 26th attack may not have been successful, but it became a highly symbolic moment in Cuban history. It was the first open, organized attack against Batista and was retroactively seen as the beginning of the Cuban Revolution. Castro later named his group of followers the 26th of July Movement. In 1953, the United States was already taking drastic measures to defeat the ever-spreading reach of communism, both at home and abroad. To give a sense of the political atmosphere, just one month before Castro's ill-fated attack, two controversial executions were carried out in America's ongoing war against communism, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The Rosenbergs were charged with infiltrating the Manhattan Project, where the United States was developing the first atomic bomb and passing information along to the Soviet Union. At their trial, U.S. Attorney Irving Saipol remarked in his opening statement, quote, the evidence will show that the loyalty and alliance of the Rosenbergs were not to our country, but that it was to communism communism in this country and communism throughout the world, end quote. Both Rosenbergs were convicted and received the death penalty. The couple's sentence was carried out on June 19, 1953. 
It's no surprise then that the U.S. government would react with similar hawkishness when a communist movement started taking control of a country less than 100 miles from the coast of Florida. Two years after the July 26th attack, Fidel and Raul Castro were released from jail. After political pressure to reform his dictatorship, Batista decided to grant the two political dissidents clemency and allow them to rejoin Cuban society. Upon his release, Fidel Castro fled to Mexico, where he joined with other self-imposed Cuban exiles, including the infamous Ernesto Che Guevara, who longed to see Batista overthrown. Castro and his fellow exiles continued plotting to wrestle control of their homeland away from Batista, and within a few short months, they were ready to strike again. On November 25, 1956, Castro and his exiles sailed for Cuba. The 26th of July movement, as they called themselves, waged a bloody war against Batista's government for years, with victories and losses for both sides. Castro's movement slowly gained more popular support over the years as Batista's dictatorship cracked down harder on its people. The United States was aware that the friendly capitalist regime was going belly up. In March of 1958, they imposed an arms embargo against Cuba and suspended deliveries of U.S. goods to the Cuban government. In effect, a diplomatic way to cut ties. By the end of 1958, Castro's revolution captured major towns in a winning offensive, culminating on January 1, 1959, when Fulgencio Batista fled the country. Cuba officially belonged to Fidel Castro. The United States wasn't pleased with the news. They had hoped that, amid the chaos, Batista could be replaced with a president they chose, who would be receptive to American interests. Once Castro took control, the U.S. held out hope they could reach an agreement with the revolutionaries who just deposed the dictator they'd long supported. Even though two of the movement's primary objectives were a redistribution of land and the nationalization of public services, Castro's government wasn't initially a communist regime. On January 7, 1959, President Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, reported that Cuba's provisional government, quote, appears free from communist taint and there are indications that it intends to pursue friendly relations with the United States, end quote. Eisenhower publicly recognized the new Cuban government and even welcomed Fidel Castro to Washington, D.C. in April 1959. But when Castro and Vice President Nixon finally met face-to-face, the new Cuban leader's remarks left the administration with considerably more trepidation. Nixon wrote a report based on his conversation with Castro, in which he outlined Castro's anti-private business leanings and his reluctance to institute elections for the island. As Castro pointed out to Nixon, quote, The people did not want elections because the elections in the past produced bad government, end quote. Nixon concluded that Fidel Castro was, quote, either incredibly naive about communism or is under communist discipline, and that the United States had, quote, no choice but to try and orient him in the right direction. 
Over the course of the next few months, as Castro's regime strengthened its hold over the island and implemented socialist practices, such as nationalizing privately owned businesses, it became clear that Castro was beyond U.S. influence. On November 5, 1959, the changing attitude towards Castro's Cuba was codified in a memo from newly appointed Secretary of State Christian Herter. He wrote, quote, All actions and policies of the United States government should be designed to encourage within Cuba and elsewhere in Latin America opposition to the extremist, anti-American course of the Castro regime. Herter was also clear on one other objective. He was adamant that U.S. involvement in Cuba be kept entirely secret and that the White House, quote, should avoid giving the impression of direct pressure or intervention against Castro, end quote. He believed that the U.N. and the rest of the world would turn against the United States if they were seen meddling in the affairs of other countries. Tensions continued to rise between Cuba and the United States when a Soviet official, Anastas Mikoyan, visited Cuba in February 1960. A CIA briefing on the visit reported that the USSR's position on Cuba, quote, has shifted from cautious attitude to one of active support. Eisenhower's government responded in turn. On March 17, 1960, he approved a CIA proposal titled A Program of Covert Action Against the Castro Regime. The paper, which outlined plans to form an opposition group in exile and to train a paramilitary force for deployment into Cuba, was the precursor to the Bay of Pigs incident and set the tone for U.S.-Cuba relations for the next 50 years. Coming up next, we'll take a look at the presidential election of 1960, Kennedy's campaign promises as tensions with Cuba mounted, and the disastrous invasion at the Bay of Pigs. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1960, U.S. relations with Cuba had all but completely deteriorated. Cuba was seen as an extension of the Soviet Union, America's greatest enemy. 
And the island nation's close proximity to Florida caused alarm for politicians and everyday Americans alike. In July 1960, President Eisenhower imposed a sugar quota on Cuba, crippling the island's economy. Castro responded a month later by nationalizing all American properties on Cuban soil, including properties owned by the U.S. government and by American citizens. For the U.S. government, watching their assets be swallowed up by communism was both a financial and an ideological blow. The issue of Cuba loomed as America came together for the election of 1960. Vice President Nixon was running on behalf of the Republican Party, and for the Democrats, the candidate was relative newcomer John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was younger than Nixon by four years and lacked Nixon's experience in the White House. But he was undeniably charismatic, and he didn't hold back in his attacks on the current administration's Cold War record. At a Democratic dinner in Cincinnati, Ohio on October 6th, Kennedy called Cuba's descent into communism and Eisenhower's failure to stop it, quote, the most glaring failure of American foreign policy today. In his opinion, continuing to uphold Batista's regime, despite its shortcomings, is what allowed communism to take hold of the island. He even referred to Cuba as, quote, the once friendly island that our own short-sighted policies helped make communism's first Caribbean base, end quote. Towards the end of the speech, he stated, quote, what can a new administration do to reverse these trends? For the present, Cuba is gone. Our policies of neglect and indifference have let it slip behind the Iron Curtain. And for the present, no magic formula will bring it back. On October 21st, 1960, Kennedy reinforced his message at another political rally on the campaign trail. Quote, We must attempt to strengthen the non-Batista democratic anti-Castro forces in exile and in Cuba itself, who offer eventual hope of overthrowing Castro. Thus far, these fighters for freedom have had virtually no support from our government. Everyone was on the same page. It would only be a matter of time before America needed to make a move against Cuba's encroaching communist government. John F. Kennedy was elected president on Tuesday, November 8, 1960, in one of the closest elections in U.S. history. Even though he wouldn't be sworn in until the next January, his legacy was already being cemented. In December 1960, Kennedy was brought into the White House and updated on the government's ongoing plan to train Cuban exiles and send them into the country, with the hopes to spur an uprising against Castro, similar to the one Castro had spurred against Batista. At that point, the invasion, which would later be named after the landing location, the Bay of Pigs, was already progressing. Three days after Kennedy was brought into the White House, Eisenhower authorized a seven-week training program in Guatemala, meant to train the Cuban exiles and prepare them for an official attack. Even at that early stage, there were doubts about the plan's probability of success. The invasion hinged upon the exiles' ability to gain the support of their fellow Cubans and start an uprising throughout the island. Colonel Edward D. Lansdale, an advisor on the project and an expert in guerrilla warfare, doubted that this would be possible, 
and he told the CIA as much. But the operation moved forward as planned. On January 3, 1961, Eisenhower's government officially broke diplomatic relations with Cuba, one of the outgoing administration's last acts. Several days later, on January 19th, President-elect Kennedy met with Eisenhower to discuss the Cuban operation. Eisenhower updated Kennedy on the progress of the invasion plan and endorsed it as the best chance for the United States to topple Castro's government. A record of the meeting reads as follows, quote, Senator Kennedy asked the president's judgment as to the United States supporting the guerrilla operation in Cuba, even if this support involves the United States publicly. The president replied, yes, as we cannot let the present government there go on. The next day, Kennedy was sworn into office and tasked with getting rid of Castro once and for all. As soon as Kennedy took over the plan to invade Cuba, different opinions began to emerge regarding how best to execute the operation. The CIA pushed for the Cuban exiles to mount their attack from Guatemala. They hoped that even if the exiles weren't immediately successful in kickstarting a revolution, they could hide out in the mountains for long enough to stoke a full-on civil war in Cuba. If there was already an ongoing conflict in Cuba, the United States could justify bringing in their own military forces to help the island find peace. The State Department, however, was less enthusiastic about the plan. They were concerned that American involvement in the initial invasion would be much more difficult to disguise than the CIA hoped, and they believed the political consequences of meddling in Cuban affairs would far outweigh the benefits of unseating Castro. For his part, President Kennedy consistently pushed for alternatives to an outright invasion. In February of 1961, he asked for an examination of all possible options that were more moderate than an armed conflict. But the CIA advisors on the project remained adamant. Richard Bissell, the CIA's deputy director of plans, believed that an invasion led by Cuban exiles would be the U.S. government's last chance to bring down Castro without overt military intervention. Bissell had always been an advocate for a strong-handed response against Castro. Several months prior, he tried to execute several assassination attempts on the communist leader, believing that this was one of the most effective ways in which they could topple the regime. As the operation progressed, Kennedy continued to push back, fearing the fallout if the U.S.'s involvement was leaked. A month before the planned invasion, Kennedy prompted the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff to switch the location from the old colonial city of Trinidad to the Bay of Pigs, where the mechanics of the operation would be easier to hide. This brought about its own problems. Trinidad was a firmly anti-Castro town, with mountains nearby where the invading party could seek shelter if necessary. The Bay of Pigs offered no natural defenses, and the population was decidedly pro-Castro. But with the location change made, Kennedy was on board to proceed with the operation. To ensure that the Cuban locals would revolt with the rebels and to mask the United States' involvement, another concurrent plan was devised. Kennedy's government would implement a trade embargo on Cuba, 
severely limiting the resources coming into the island and, hopefully, creating unrest amongst the civilian population. Then, when the invasion struck, the CIA believed that the economic difficulties would brim to the surface and spark the Cubans to join the rebellion. Even if the operation wasn't successful, Bissell convinced Kennedy that the exiles could go guerrilla and continue to stir up trouble for Castro from the mountains, as Castro himself once did for the Batista regime. Unfortunately for the Kennedy administration, Castro and his government became aware of the planned invasion months before the exiles reached the Bay of Pigs. Despite the U.S. government's attempts to keep the operation a secret, rumors abounded through the expat Cuban community that anti-Castro Cuban exiles were being trained and prepared to attack. It has also been established that Castro had double agents infiltrate the training camps and train alongside the invading force, which was nicknamed Brigade 2506. Because of this, Castro knew that an invasion was being planned. He didn't know the exact date, but the island was on red alert. On April 15, 1961, two days before the planned Bay of Pigs invasion, members of Brigade 2506 flew unmarked planes over Cuba and targeted air bases with the intention of destroying the military's air support before they could squash the invasion. The attack destroyed close to 80% of Cuba's air forces. The official cover story, as told by the Cuban invaders and the U.S., was that the men flying the planes were Cuban soldiers who had become disillusioned with the Castro government and attacked their own base before flying to the United States to defect. But Fidel Castro immediately suspected American involvement. He claimed that his army would never turn on him. The Cuban foreign minister, Raul Roa, called an emergency session at the United Nations that same afternoon and demanded that the United States take responsibility for the attack. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Adlai Stevenson, wasn't aware of America's involvement in the attack. He vehemently denied any responsibility and held up photos of the planes, claiming that the design was Cuban, not American. Unfortunately, this only served as evidence for the Cubans. On closer inspection, it was clear the planes had metal noses, and the noses of Cuban planes were uniformly made of plastic. Kennedy and his administration were thoroughly embarrassed by the incident. Embarrassed enough to cancel phase two of the planned invasion, an airstrike that would take out the remaining 20% of Cuba's planes. The choice was a political one rather than a military one, and it ended up having serious consequences. After the first attack, the Cuban military was on red alert for an invasion, and when a beacon was spotted on the Bay of Pigs, the entire military, including the remaining air forces, flocked to the area. The tide was against the landing party, meaning it took them longer than anticipated to reach the shores of Cuba. But once they did, the Cuban military was ready and waiting for them, and the promised U.S. air and naval support was nowhere to be found. The U.S. government was so concerned that their involvement would be noticed that they scaled back their own forces, leaving the invading exiles with very little backup. 
Castro's military squashed the meager invading forces within 48 hours, taking close to 1,200 prisoners. Worst of all, the United States' involvement became known to everyone. Just a few days later, on April 21, 1961, Kennedy accepted full responsibility for the failed invasion. What was meant to be a resounding blow against Castro's administration ended up sparking outrage and indignation at the Americans instead. It also pushed a wedge between Kennedy and the military advisors responsible for the operation. Leaders within the administration were tasked with discovering what went wrong. And several months after the attack, the CIA Inspector General, Lyman Kirkpatrick, pointed several accusatory fingers. Richard Bissell, the operative in charge of the Bay of Pigs operation, came under attack. According to Kirkpatrick, he failed to tell the president that, quote, success had become dubious. Kirkpatrick also placed blame on Tracy Barnes, a CIA operative with oversight of the Cuba project. A formal board of inquiry determined in June of 1961 that in order for an invasion of this scale to work, it would have needed significantly more firepower and air support, which would have given away U.S. involvement. In short, there could be either victory or secrecy, and Kennedy had made the choice for everyone. But the inquiry also discovered that the CIA should have foreseen this problem months before the attack actually happened, giving them time to course correct. It's hard to say why they didn't anticipate the failure, or if they did, why they didn't tell President Kennedy about it. The Bay of Pigs may have failed, but the disaster only made the Kennedy administration more eager to overthrow Castro once and for all. The only question that remained was what lengths they were willing to go to in order to accomplish that goal. Coming up, we'll examine the new plans the Kennedy administration considered, including the deeply controversial Operation Northwoods project. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or tick it. Paid for by NHTSA. Now back to the story. In April 1961, President John F. Kennedy publicly accepted responsibility for the Bay of Pigs invasion and its failure. But privately, he believed that the CIA operatives in charge of the project led him astray. He fired the CIA's director, Alan Dulles, and Deputy Director of Plans, Richard Bissell. And in November 1961, he moved forward with a new plan called Operation Mongoose. Kennedy gave control of the operation to Edward Lansdale, who had predicted that the Bay of Pigs operation would be unsuccessful. Instead of resorting to military tactics immediately, Operation Mongoose relied on stirring up anti-Castro sentiments that already existed on the island and pursuing underground strategies to destabilize the regime. The end goal was to provoke a revolt against Castro without having to directly instigate one. 
The operation had six phases, ending with a U.S. military invasion to secure a new democratic government for the island. The Kennedy administration still disapproved of American military action in Cuba, but they agreed to it if Lansdale could create enough unrest in Cuba to make the invasion look like a quest to save a country on the brink of destruction, rather than an unprovoked attack to preserve American interests. Operation Mongoose began with a formal embargo on Cuba in February of 1962. The coming phases laid out plans for economic sanctions and underground missions to bolster anti-Castro sentiments, such as funding existing rebel groups and turning public support against the Soviet Union. The ultimate goal was a full-scale American invasion by the fall of 1962. But in the first two months, the operation's early stages weren't going as planned. The Cuban locals were more firmly loyal to Castro than previously thought, and the underground sabotage missions only increased anti-American sentiment in Cuba. This early failure led to the development and proposal of Operation Northwoods, one of the most critiqued and controversial documents ever produced by the United States government. While the previous plan, Operation Mongoose, had relied on stirring up unrest on the island of Cuba, Lansdale's missions weren't sticking, and the clock was ticking. Lansdale needed to look toward more options if the U.S. still hoped to invade Cuba by October. He asked General Lyman Lemnitzer, the Joint Chief of Staff, for a, quote, brief but precise description of pretext which would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. That proposal, which was called Operation Northwoods, was presented on March 13, 1962. The objective, stated within the memo, was to, quote, heighten U.S.-Cuban tensions and justify U.S. military intervention by placing the states in the position of suffering justifiable grievances. In other words, the goal was to make the U.S. look like the victim before they went charging into Cuba. General Lemnitzer proposed that world opinion should be favorably affected by developing the international image of the Cuban government as rash and irresponsible. So, if the U.S. was going to look like the victim, Cuba needed to look like a supervillain. The only question is how. Some of the ideas outlined in the memo included staging an attack on the U.S. base at Guantanamo Bay by blowing up a U.S. ship and blaming it on Castro. The document also discussed sinking a boat full of Cuban refugees en route to the United States. Painting Cuba as a vicious government that would kill its own citizens, and using a drone to stage an aircraft being shot down by the Cubans. Instead of stirring up unrest and hoping that a revolution would spring up in Cuba of its own accord, Operation Northwood suggested that the surest way to guarantee U.S. military involvement without alienating the rest of the world was to stage false flag attacks to turn the world against Cuba even if it meant incurring civilian casualties. Operation Northwoods was immediately shut down by Kennedy's administration, and General Lemnitzer was reassigned to NATO shortly afterward. The proposal was never put into effect. Officially, at least, 
But this incident only escalated the growing tension between Kennedy and the CIA. They believed the rejection of the proposal was evidence that Kennedy was going soft on Cuba. Their previous attempts to provoke the Cuban population to revolt had been unsuccessful, and Castro himself refused to attack American soil or property, so something drastic had to be done before it was too late. Even though Operation Mongoose wasn't quite working as intended, Cuba and the Soviet Union had read the writing on the wall and guessed that a U.S. attack was imminent. Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union were only growing more frigid. In April of 1962, the United States implemented a series of nuclear missiles in Turkey known as the U.S. Jupiter missiles. This alarmed the Soviet Union as the missiles were primed for deployment and within easy striking distance of Moscow. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev figured out a way to kill two birds with one stone by offering Fidel Castro's government nuclear weapons of their own. Khrushchev hoped this would provide Cuba some leverage against a U.S. invasion and also ensure that the Soviet Union was able to retaliate in case of a U.S. nuclear strike. After consulting with top Cuban leaders, Castro accepted Khrushchev's offer, and the Soviet Union began shipping arms and weaponry over to their Cuban cousins. The CIA was informed of the weapon shipments in September of 1962. The Soviet Union claimed that they were only sending agricultural equipment and supplies, but U.S. intelligence received countless reports, both from Cuba and from their allies, that this was much more than farming equipment. The U.S. confronted the Soviet Union about these alleged arms shipments later that month, but the Soviet ambassador insisted that they were only sending Cuba defensive weapons. That excuse didn't work for long. On October 14, 1962, a U-2 plane flew over Cuba's western shore, An analysis of the photos two days later showed that the Soviet Union had been building sites for intermediate-range nuclear missiles. This discovery was cause for immediate alarm from the White House. The world had already seen the destruction a nuclear bomb could cause, and Cuba now had these missiles on hand just 90 miles from the American border. Kennedy and his administration spent the next six days locked up, trying to figure out how to prevent an all-out war. Upon further examination, it became clear that the missiles weren't ready to be fired quite yet, but they could be in as little as two weeks. The White House had to act, and quickly. Some in Kennedy's administration, specifically the Joint Chiefs of Staff, advocated for an immediate attack on Cuba, with or without provocation. They discussed the possibility of an airstrike to take out the missiles, but the plan would involve casualties on both sides, something Kennedy hoped deeply to avoid. On October 21, 1962, Kennedy called for the Soviet Union to remove their weapons from Cuba. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to halt and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. The next day, Kennedy decided to enforce a full naval blockade with the hope of preventing any further weapons shipments to Cuba. He then convened a press conference and announced the situation to the world. 
nuclear missiles sat just off the coast of Florida, ready to strike at any moment. He demanded that the Soviet Union dismantle the sites immediately and withdraw all weapons from Cuba. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Khrushchev refused to do so, and Kennedy made preparations for a full military invasion. The world stood in trepidation on October 24th as a Soviet ship made its way to the naval blockade near the border of Cuba. If it attempted to pass the blockade line, it would result in a military response that might spark a nuclear war. But the ship stopped short of the line. Kennedy patiently waited for Khrushchev and Castro to make a move, despite his administration's calls for preemptive action. Sometime between October 26th and 27th, Khrushchev sent two back-to-back letters to Kennedy. The first promised to withdraw Soviet missiles in exchange for a promise that the U.S. wouldn't invade Cuba. The second letter laid out slightly different terms. The Soviet Union would withdraw their missiles from Cuba only if the U.S. withdrew theirs from Turkey. Kennedy's administration decided to respond only to Khrushchev's first letter and promised not to invade Cuba. These agreed-upon terms were announced to the world as the crisis drew to a close. Privately, Kennedy also agreed to withdraw the missiles from Turkey, but only several months after the USSR withdrew theirs from Cuba. The Soviet Union agreed, both publicly and privately. They began dismantling the missiles, and on November 20, 1962, the U.S. officially lifted its blockade on Cuba. Kennedy was later praised for navigating the tense situation and preventing things from escalating into an all-out war. But not everyone was happy with the peaceful solution. Top CIA leaders and the Joint Chiefs of Staff had advocated for a military invasion, and they felt that Kennedy had blinked in this international game of chicken. Some within his administration started to believe that Kennedy didn't have the grit necessary to get the job done. There was another consequence of the peaceful resolve. The United States was obligated to uphold their agreement not to invade Cuba. Because of this agreement, Castro would remain in power until 2008, becoming the longest-serving national leader of the 20th century and one of the most controversial. This peaceful but unsatisfying conclusion left key leaders within the Kennedy administration wondering if they had completed the wrong mission and if there was anything they could do now to reverse the tide. Next week, we'll explore some of the conspiracy theories surrounding U.S.-Cuba relations. Conspiracy theory number one. Top military and CIA officials deliberately sabotaged the Bay of Pigs invasion to embarrass Kennedy and force him to commit more fully to overthrowing Castro. Conspiracy number two. John F. Kennedy was assassinated in part because he refused to carry out Operation Northwoods and the same officials who advocated for the operation's implementation attempted to use his death as another reason to officially invade Cuba. And conspiracy theory number three. 
Operation Northwoods is proof that the U.S. government is willing to conspire against its own citizens, and that it did, indeed, carry out a similar operation years later, on September 11, 2001. As we talk through the behind-the-scenes drama and intrigue leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'll examine how Kennedy's goals during the 60s time period stood opposite to his Joint Chiefs of Staff, his top CIA advisors, and the military-industrial complex that still has a hold over our government today. Join us next week as we search for the truth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Liz Dorovitsen and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 